Hello and welcome to the Not a Victim podcast. Not a Victim is a show about learning to live a life without excuses. Today's guest is um, Sandy Rudolph, who happens to also be my mom. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess you already know all this stuff, but um, yeah, just tell me a little bit about the situation that you were born into with your parents and all that childhood stuff. Okay, well, um, my dad was a World War II veteran, so he was... Just a great guy. Very strong, pretty quiet, um, and he went through a lot with my mom. My mom was sweet, but she held on to a lot of bitterness and resentment, and it basically made her crazy. Mm. And I had two much older brothers, and... Um, did she... Was she, like, diagnosed as... Yes. Schizophrenic or something? Yes. She was diagnosed as manic depressive, bipolar, and schizophrenic. And um, back in those days, there was one book to read about it and um, not a whole lot of help or information. Mm. Yeah, so keep, keep telling me about your brothers. Okay, so my brothers were 10 and 15 years older than me, so um, they were flower children and... I was born in 1964, so I was in the last year of the boomers and basically kind of grew up with them um, influencing my music and my um, a lot of my attitudes, which wasn't all bad. But um, to this day, I don't know where they are, and that really makes me sad. But they mm-hmm. they loved me, but they weren't good about really being brothers <laughs> and um so my family was beautiful when I was very young but then by the time I was a young teenager it definitely fell apart up until I was about seven things were very sweet and um basically happy and um my dad played a lot of tennis and worked for the coca-cola company and my mom enjoyed PTA and garden club and things like that. When I was about seven, my mom's sister, my aunt, um, took her life. And when that happened, um, my mom was just never the same. They were best friends and her sister had dealt with a lot of hard things and she, um, drowned a lot of it with alcohol and she made, some really bad decisions and as they say suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem and it affected everyone and um after that my mom just couldn't um keep her focus on the lord she really um just started acting out and by the time i was a teenager the whole neighborhood knew she was crazy I mean, it wasn't a secret you could keep anymore when your mom's running around in her nightgown going to the mall and the police are bringing her home. And this, like, happens every other day. And um, my dad was still working. And um, when I graduated from high school, the day of my graduation, um, she told me she wasn't coming. And that was very unusual because she was usually over-involved and really just always up in my business as much as she could be and she basically just could not handle me leaving the house and um 
things got really bad. Um, she just started getting violent and she was on all kind of medication in and out of mental hospitals. And, um, she had a, the same psychiatrist consistently for a couple decades, but none of it really did any good. It temporarily would calm her down. It would give us a break so to speak, but it was very sad because she was really just like a zombie when she was taking medication, and when she wasn't taking it, she was just nuts, and um, sometimes she would try to hurt me or my dad, and um, one time I had to get in the middle of them, and it just got really crazy, so I basically just had to um, stay away, and then I would only get involved when my dad asked me to. Do you think that she had um, sort of problems with guilt or um, self-hatred or something due to the fact that um, her sister was going through stuff that she didn't know about? That her Like, did she have resentment that um, her sister committed suicide and, and it seemed to, like, and, and she felt guilt for that? Like, she didn't wasn't aware of how serious the problems well, were? Yeah, she... she... She had tried to help her sister and was so sweet because back in those days, you know, you couldn't send an email or anything. So she would like hand copy pages of the Bible and mail it to my aunt Mm. and try to encourage her. They had gone to see her and, you know, they had tried to help her, but um, she, I'm sure she felt all kind of things. She didn't really talk to me about it because I was a little girl then, but I vividly remember it. And, you know, the funeral and all of it. It was a, I knew my family was changing that day. I just didn't know exactly what was, you know, happening. But um, she had grown up, she and her sister and brother had grown up in a home um, where the parents were both alcoholics. My grandparents were raging alcoholics. And she had been, they had both been molested as girls and, um, you know, back in those days, nobody talked about that stuff, and you weren't allowed to even um, talk about it with your parents. They just, you know, that was uh, something you just kept secret, and um, so I'm sure they just pushed that way down, and, you know, as we get older, those things have a way of coming out if you don't deal with them, and my mom loved the Lord, and when she was... uh, you know, walking with him closely or reading her Bible or, you know, listening to music, she would kind of do okay, but um, it was just really tricky. I think really her issue was was spiritual. Yeah, so just tell me about, like, from high school into college and the college years. and High school, I loved high school. I was one of those nerdy, fun girls that was in everything, and Um, the more I could be at school, the less I was at home. So that was great with me. Um, once I started driving, I got a job and, um, did every extracurricular thing I could. So I really enjoyed high school. 10th, 11th, 12th grade were the best. And I had a boyfriend who I thought was a good guy at the time. And, um, so those years were kind of pretty good. When I went off to school, um, I just really lost um, my uh, orientation, I guess. I, I couldn't figure out 
how to function um, as an adult because I had been in such a crazy uh, house and then all of a sudden I was just on my own. And so um, I had four roommates and they were all fun girls and loved them, but we didn't necessarily bring out the best in each other. And there was a bar in the parking lot of our apartment complex. So um, I started drinking. I never drank before that. And um, not knowing how addictive my personality was at the time or thinking about the fact that I came from um, alcoholic family, um, you know, I just quickly went from someone who had never drank to someone who got drunk as fast as possible. And... I graduated from college and I did well in college, but it was in spite of my habits. I developed really bad um, habits as far as not taking care of myself and um, the relationship I was in really wasn't healthy and I uh, turned down a lot of opportunities because, you know, my boyfriend didn't want me to do them. Meanwhile, he was cheating on me and... um, It was an ugly, ugly time in my life, but I didn't want to go home. So I was one of those students that stayed at school during the breaks. And if I went home, it was for as short a time as possible. However, there were times when my dad would call and ask me to come home because I would need to take my mom to the mental hospital. And he just couldn't bring himself to do it. And later on, I kind of resented the fact that He had me do that, but that's just how things were at my house. And if my dad asked me to do something, I would do it Mm. because I respected him completely. So, And he probably didn't do it all the time. No, he didn't do it all the time. And and it was only when he felt it was really necessary, but he was still working and there was just really no one there, you know, to keep mom from running around like a little butterfly. And she would hurt herself and she was driving and she... You know, we didn't know if she would hurt people driving. And so I'd have to borrow a car. I didn't have a car then. And I um, I would borrow my boyfriend's car. And that always came with a lot of strings attached. And I would have to go home and trick her to get in the car with me. And I would tell her we were going out to lunch and all these pretty little things. And sometimes I would try to fulfill that and then take her to the mental hospital. But it was really a heartbreaking thing. And not something a young woman should have to go through but you know that happens we all have things we have to deal with um that shouldn't quote quote have to be that way and um how long was she there like she would be there for months at a time sometimes and it happened for off and on for 20 years so at this point she would go and she'd usually be there anywhere from a few weeks to a couple months but um, you know, it was just very sad and, and walking in there, um, the doors locked behind you when you go in. And so to this day, I kind of battle claustrophobia at times. And I know it's just from being in, in those rooms that were locking behind you and you couldn't get out unless someone let you out. And meanwhile, you're locked in this ward with all these people with all these issues and, not that different from me, but they were all medicated, and it's very scary to just be there, especially for a young girl. Mm. But I never shared any of that with my dad. He didn't know what it was like. He never took her, so he didn't know. He probably thought it was a very easy 
um, clean and clinical thing, but it really wasn't. And we, I would have to wait there with her and wait for a doctor to come. And um, it was very difficult. So in between all that, I just stayed at school mm. and, um, you know, tried not to think about my family very much. Mm. Yeah, so um, I guess just tell me about the season after college, what came after college? Well, um, after college, my boyfriend and I, this time we had dated like five years and he had pretty much cheated on me the whole time, but I never wanted to believe it. But then towards the end, it was just, even I couldn't talk myself out of believing it. So that was coming to an end and that was very heartbreaking for me. And, um, and you did, so you dated him through all of college, I guess. Yes. And I also dated other people because we would break up, like, all the time. So I would always, you know, have somebody else to go out with in between. But, you know, it was just crazy, not good. And um, when we finally broke up, it was when we were after uh, we had graduated. And I was working, and um, I started really, really drinking a lot. And... I became what you would call a functional alcoholic. I would go to work and do what I had to do and then drink the rest of the time. And um, some of my friends knew I was that way, but the ones that didn't do that didn't know I was that way because I would hang out with whoever was appropriate to whatever I was feeling like doing. So um, I rented places with friends and um, you know tried to just put my life back together and there was a point where um, I had gone back home because my roommate had left and I'd lost my apartment and um, things were escalating so much with my mom that um, she really attacked my dad and he would not fight her. He would not defend himself because he didn't believe that was the right thing to do. So she was actually physically hurting him and he was an older man by this time and so I got in between them, and I pushed her, and she fell and hit her head, and, you know, it was bleeding, it was very dramatic, and so I just left, and I didn't have anywhere to go, so I kind of lived in my car for a couple days and stayed with one friend one night, one friend another night, and I ended up living in the living room of my boyfriend's parents, even though he and I weren't dating anymore. His mom... Uh, was so sweet to me the whole time we were together and she was very much of a mother figure to me so I stayed there till I could get back on my feet and um, then I got another roommate in another apartment and just kept working then um, I met a guy who was a lot older than me in a bar and things really took a downward turn um you want me to keep talking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he um, he lived out of town, and I had a flex schedule with work, so I would work a couple days a week and then go see him, and I would end up spending probably five days a week out of town with him, and he was a drug dealer, a drug user, um, and so that that became a really, really bad situation. For me mm. um when we first started dating he said i don't want you you know using this stuff and this just ignore these people that are in and out and 
But being the weak person that I was at the time and being an addict uh, already alcohol-wise, I quickly jumped into his lifestyle and um, just basically did whatever drug he handed me. And um, he had a house full of guns and drugs and money and pit bulls, and it was um, just a... A different way to live but it it helped me escape from my mom and all the sadness of my family and nobody really knew where I was and back then there were no cell phones so people couldn't get a hold of me and I liked that hmm. so what happened after that well we um, we dated a couple years like he was I don't know, I think he was 16 years older than me. He was a lot older than me. Like, I had no business dating him. <laughs> and, of course, my parents, they met him, and they were not happy about that. And um, But I didn't really care, and um, I just spent as much time with him as possible. But it wasn't really because I liked him. I, it was just a, an escape. He came from money. His parents had money. He was the only child and their family and so he had a beach house he had a lake house he had a just whatever and the mayor was kind of in his back pocket and his dad was also a a drug user and so they just kind of had this insulated druggy life and um I would watch his friends get busted and be in and out of jail but he never went and um at the time, I really just didn't want to live, and I knew I was mixing all kinds of drugs and substances, and I just didn't care. And it didn't seem like my family cared because they were all split apart, and my mom didn't even know who I was half the time. And uh, it was just very sad and very dark. And, um, I just thought, let's just get this over with as quickly as possible. So I I really just, you know, I took a lot of different things. And um, I was a Christian, which sounds weird to say, but I had truly given my life to the Lord as a young girl and had lived for him until college, basically, and... I truly belong to him and so when you you know for me because I belong to him every time I would get drunk or get high I didn't have really peace in it because I knew that I had this other part of me that was that was not jiving good with that and I can remember on Saturdays like late in the afternoon I would hear the Lord speak to me and say you know let's not do this tonight let's you know, you don't have to do that, and we can, you know, there's a different way you can live, and, and I would just drown that voice out as quickly as I could, and um, I've since prayed for this guy, because I feel like if I had said, hey, let's, let's go to church, or let me pray with you, he would have, he wanted to get married, and I, I just, you know, wasn't interested in that at all, and actually, that's what helped me break up and get away from him because one day I was in a rare moment of sobriety and I looked over at him and I thought you know what am I doing and I don't even know how I got here 
even though I did, of course. And But I just had this feeling that my life was so off track and just not at all what I wanted. And he didn't want to let me go. And so I kind of had to break out. And so um, I just waited until he was passed out because he would pass out every night at some point. And I just, I planned my escape from him. And even though I didn't have any money, I was surrounded by stacks of cash everywhere. But I didn't want to use any of it. And so I just prayed and I asked the Lord to help me get away. So I had a max out credit card and I got in the car and I took that credit card and went to the gas station and prayed and asked the Lord to fill up my my tank and he did even though my card was way over the limit. And um I drove and and just got away from him. He did continue to try to find me and he stalked me some and even um after I had met your dad and was engaged to your dad, he still tried to stalk me. But um, by that time, I knew that I didn't have to be with him anymore, and he didn't have any power over me anymore. But um, it was one of those situations, one of those sad situations. You'd see this much older guy out with this young, stupid girl, and you think, you know, she needs to get away from him. And, you know, I was just never sober when I was with him. I, you know, he he stayed drunk and stoned at all times, and then everything else was just whatever he felt like adding to that that day. Mm-hmm. And so when I got away from him, um, things started to look up, and at least I felt like, you know, I, I had just made a decision that I wanted to find my way back to the Lord somehow, and I knew that he'd take me back, which was the beauty of my faith because I knew the concept of grace and mercy and I knew that he would be waiting with open arms I knew that and um, I thank God for that and so I got a different uh, job and I started a business with one of my friends and um, we uh, did a real estate type business and we got a contract in New York and um, that's how I met your dad. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you ever had a season of life that you thought you would never get out of? And maybe I shouldn't ask this question because you already went through a few of of those. No, that's um, okay. But, yeah, just have you ever felt like you were stuck in a season of life that would just, part of you thought, would go on forever? Yes, I think that happened... I had two seasons like that. One season was when I was um, a young adult and realizing just how messed up my family was and how crazy my mom was. Um, I didn't think I'd ever be able to make anything on my life because it was almost impossible to feel confident in any way when your mother's running around cutting up your baby pictures and you know ripping everything and and saying weird hurtful awful things to your dad and to you and you know it was very hard to uh remember that I was someone of worth because it was just um a very dark place I I just didn't know if I'd ever have 
my own life that was different from that. Um, and then the other time I felt that way was when I was so deep in the, the drug scene with, with that boyfriend because I, I didn't think I'd live through it. And, you know, he would, um, I, I don't even know what all drugs we were doing. They were all different colors and all different things. And I would just take whatever it was. And, um, you know, I mean, and when you're with people like that, then you're with other people like that, that, you know, like his supposed friends and, you know, they just got darker and darker and darker. You know, I've, one of them attacked me one night and threw me up against the wall and shoved cocaine up my nose. And I had never done that, and I didn't want to do that. And, um, But, you know, you put yourself in one bad situation, and suddenly you find out that you're in ten others. And mm. so I truly didn't think I was going to live through that. I just figured one way or the other, either from what I was doing or what someone was doing to me, that I just wasn't going to live through it. And um, I'm grateful to the Lord to this day that he didn't give up on me and he kept talking to me, even though I know he hated what I was doing. And not to mention sexually and all of that, you know, I was a very immoral person. And, um, and that's the beauty of, of our God is that he forgives. Mm. Um, what about the violin teacher thing? I know that's a weird thing to bring up, yeah. but I just feel like it's so more common than... Yes. No, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I meant to mention that already. Um, and I guess that still shows how I still try to put some things aside in my mind. But um, when I was, um, uh, I guess, 15, because um, it was before I was driving... And my mom dropped me off at my new violin teacher's house. Let me back up and say I had been in Atlanta Youth Symphony for several years, which is an incredible opportunity. Um, it's a younger branch of the Atlanta Symphony. And it's very competitive and very hard to, to get in. And um, a very exciting uh, endeavor if you're a musician. And I was a violinist. And so... This new teacher came to town, and he was going to be the visiting soloist for that year for the or that season for the symphony. So everyone's trying to get a lesson with him. And he was from another country, and I had a friend who was a guy that um, we were constantly competing at, at school um, who started taking from him, and he said, well, you probably don't want to take from him. You know, he doesn't do good with with girl students. You really shouldn't take lessons from him. And, and I just thought he was being competitive and didn't want me to get better than him. And so he just didn't want me to take lessons from him. And I, at that time, had no sexual experience at all. And I had no idea what he was trying to nicely... Um, insinuate or protect me from I just had no idea he even offered to come and sit there while I had my lesson and I just thought no you just want to spy on me and find out my secret techniques I'm going to learn and I just had no idea what was going on so my mom dropped me off 
and um, she wanted to stay. And of course, when you're 15, that's the last thing you want is to have your mom sitting there while you're doing anything. And I was just mortified to, to have her sit there and and listen to my lesson. So um, when he, uh, we went to his house, which was a normal thing to do when you took a lesson, you went to their house and his wife was there and their children were there. And so I thought, well, this, this is fine. This is normal. His wife and kids are here. Everything's fine. So I made her leave, you know, encouraged her to go to the grocery store and she was supposed to come back in an hour and get me. And, um, uh, he said after he said goodbye to my mom, he said something to his wife and kids kind of sternly in, in another language and they ran off. And so I thought, Okay, so we started the lesson, and next thing I know, he's, um, well, he's molesting me, but I didn't know what he was doing, and I just thought, well, this is strange, and sometimes, you know, I had had a woman violin teacher prior to that, and sometimes they would um, stand behind you and, you know, help you hold the bow right or hold your violin right, and so I just kind of thought that's what he was doing, and then I realized that was not what he was doing, and, and I just... I didn't really know what was happening, but I knew that it was not good and strange. And so, um, I just left that day and I didn't really say anything to my mom because I, I just didn't know what had happened. So when the time came for me to go the next week, um, my friend Tom had said, well, how was your lesson? And I'm like, well, it was, it was good. It was, I just didn't talk about any of that. I, I felt like somehow, um, I must have misunderstood or, or done something wrong or just that I was just not remembering things correctly. So I went one more time. Again, I made my mom leave. Again, he ran his wife and kids off. And next thing I know, he's grabbing me and throwing me in this room and locking the door. And the only thing in that room is a bed. And so even though I didn't know exactly what I was doing, I had a good idea of what he was trying to do. And, um, but I was faster than him and I got away. And so I grabbed my violin. I, I didn't really even want to stop and get it, but it was really expensive and my parents had really sacrificed to buy it for me. So I, I got it. I, I got out the door and I just started walking towards the grocery store because, you know, this was like 1980, 1979, something like that. No cell phones. And, um, you know, I knew eventually my mom would come that way and I'd get in the car. So that's what happened. And I didn't really tell her what happened, but I told her enough where she was very upset. And she told my dad. And, of course, he was furious. And he wanted to go over there or call the police or something. And I, I still didn't really understand kind of what the big deal was. I just thought he was a gross man and I just wanted it to go away. So what they ended up doing was writing a letter to the symphony. And next thing I know, he was transferred and, and replaced by someone else. Um, but he is still currently conducting a symphony and, um, which makes me very angry. And in this day and time, I guess I could bring it back up, but, um, it would just be my word against his and he's an old man by now. And, um, you know, I don't really know, uh, what good it, that would do, but, um, 
it was a very, very weird uh, experience that ultimately affected um, my uh, sexual boundaries or lack of sexual boundaries because as soon as all that started, I realized that what he had tried to do and it just made me feel very dirty and trashy and um, as if I had done something to make him feel like he could be that way with me. And so, you know, it, it, it did affect me in a lot of ways that I didn't realize. And then, um, you know, many years later, I hadn't, I realized I hadn't talked to anyone about it or your dad didn't even know about it. Um, you know, it was about 20 years ago and I just woke up in the middle of the night and I said, I got to tell you what happened with my violin teacher. And, um, I realized that I really hadn't worked through that and that I really had a lot of work to do personally to get that out of my, my mind and to let the Lord heal those places. And, um, as a result of that happening, I, I fulfilled the commitments I had made to the symphony and to other, I, I was supposed to play for a wedding and some other things. And I did those things. But by the time I went off to college, I just put my violin under the bed and I didn't touch it. And then, um, when y'all were little, we pawned it for grocery money and I just didn't want to ever even see a violin after that. So, um, you know, I, I'm really glad to share that because you just never know who that will help. And so many people have a story similar to that with someone who's in a, a leadership role in their life or a coach or a minister. And at a different time, about the next year, I'd had a minister, uh, take me with him to go look at music and he locked me in his car and I got out of there before anything happened. But again, you know, I was having, um, strange and not good things happen with some of the leaders and, mm. uh, you know, what I thought were role models in my life. And, um, as a young adult, I made the mistake of, uh, letting that determine my uh, decision to stay away from church and not wanting to be involved with Christians because I thought, well, you know, uh, people are evil and the Lord could have stopped that and mm. um, I don't want anything to do with him or any of his people. What I've learned now as a almost 55-year-old woman this year is that, of course, People are people, and people make bad decisions, and, um, you know, they're not a good representative of the Lord necessarily, Yeah. and it's not fair to judge him by them. Um, do you think that you should... I kind of wonder if you should write something publicly about the situation with the guy conducting the symphony, because... Not to get him thrown in jail, but I just wonder how if he's still trying to do it, or I don't know if he's still doing it. Or yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess you know my response would be, "Well, it's just my word against his." But these days, that's enough to get people in trouble. Well, yeah, even if it's I think not the, true, right? I would say, yeah, um, I would say maybe. 
you could write it in a way to say I'm not trying to bring criminal charges because that's when you the whole like court thing and all that happens. Mm-hmm. This would just be like we're just gonna go public with this so that if this has happened to other people, I know it did happen to other <clears throat> people. I know it happened then to other people because yeah. I, we weren't the only ones that. Talk I guess the sad thing it. is, if he isn't that way now, well, that's what it I was would sort say. of be sad to ruin his life. Yeah, now. that's what I was going to say. Um, I wonder if we shouldn't... Mm. The tricky part is, I strongly believe in being a, that people are a new creation in Christ when they choose to be, you yeah. know? And, of course, I don't know where he stands with all that, but... Um, you know, I would hate to, um, you know, bring condemnation on someone that is, it is a, that is a new person now. I mean, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I was very disrespectful to the guys that I would sleep with and manipulate and use up until the time that I met your dad, and I'm a very different person than I was then, mm. and. Um, yeah. Of course, maybe. I didn't hurt them, and it wasn't inappropriate, but it was wrong. It was immoral, and I was taking advantage of them, and, you know, just... Um, I guess I wonder, yeah. one idea would be if there was a way to talk to some people, some women he interacts with now, and, I don't know, and don't just know. see what their about. experience between him and them is, so that... Yeah. I don't know. Here's the thing that's interesting that I did not know until last year when I Googled him because this was coming up in a Celebrate Recovery setting, but I thought that he was out of the country all this time because what the symphony people told my parents was we're deporting him Hmm. because he was on a short-term visa. Hmm. But that's actually not what they did. They just relocated him to Hmm. smaller less uh, prestigious Mm. uh, role in a different symphony. Mm. So all this time, it was a non-issue for me. Otherwise, I might have done it when it was more current, you know, more so than I did. But we were told he was deported, and I was like, well, thank you, Jesus, you know, so. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess you couldn't really do anything if he were in another place. That's what I figured. I mean, at the time, you couldn't. There was no internet back then, you know. Yeah. So I'm sure it's something dad, to pray about. Yeah, I'm sure your dad wanted to kill him. Oh, he did. He really <laughs> and did. And that's probably the type of man that would have killed him. But <laughs> he would have known if how. He, if he if decided he, to, you know. Yeah, because, um, you know, a World War II vet, those guys are the, the gentle giants, they call them. You know, the strong, silent type. And I'm, I'm kind of kidding about that. He probably would have had the restraint not to do that. But I know. Um, yeah, so I guess go. let's go into... Um, when you met dad and just from there on i guess okay um well when i met your dad he really was an answer to prayer the few years before that i had cleaned up my act as far as i wasn't doing a lot of different drugs i was still smoking pot when it came across my path but i wasn't hanging out with what you call druggy people anymore i was kind of more in the party girl scene and I drank a lot but um in my mind that was just so much better (laughs) and so um 
my girlfriend and I that I had a business with, uh, when, once we went up to New York, you know, we were two blonde girls from Georgia. So needless to say, we got a lot of attention and we really stuck out and we started knowing the hip happening place to go each night. So we had a Monday night place and a Tuesday night place, Wednesday night place. And, um, we were at the Tuesday night place at the time in Albany, New York, which, uh, was the Marriott and they had like this big bar and band and all. And, um, I met your dad and the first night I met him, he was just being funny. He was with his friends. I didn't really get to talk to him, but I, I thought he was, you know, funny, but you know, just, I don't know. They were all being kind of strange and silly and, then I saw him again, like, the next week at a different place, at the Thursday night place. And that's when we exchanged phone numbers. And that was back in the day where if you lost the piece of paper with the with the girl's phone number or the guy's phone number, you were just out of luck because there was no way to track him down on Facebook. And so um, I held him to his number, and he called, and um, we uh, eventually went out and... Um, our first date, uh, I got really, really nervous and I invited his roommate, um, who was a guy that, um, didn't really have a lot going on. And he kind of thought I was like, had a crush on him because I invited him to go with us. <laughs> he was very sweet, but I didn't, I was just nervous. I knew your dad was, um, different. I could tell he was um, a very sober person. Um, the first thing he bought me to drink was a glass of orange juice. And, um, I'm like, oh, cool. Okay. I haven't had any orange juice in a while, you know? And, um, he was a business owner and I liked that. And so was I, and I could just tell he was a real go-getter. Well, when we went out, um, on our date, um, I called his roommate. I called their house. That he wasn't. Afternoon. He wasn't rich then, though. That's for sure. Oh no, <laughs> he had no money. But I didn't know that. And um, the cool thing was the guy that I had been with the last serious relationship, which was a couple years prior to that, was the druggy guy who had tons of money. So I had worked my way through all that and gotten to the point where I didn't care what money a guy had. I now just wanted a genuine man. And um, so the afternoon that we we're supposed to go on our date, I called there not knowing if I would get your dad or the roommate, but I got the roommate and I asked him what was your dad's favorite kind of beer. And your dad had, was pretty much done with his drinking days by then. He had um, drank a lot with his older brother when he was a young boy, but he had pretty much, you know, tired, grown tired of that scene. So Terry didn't really know. So I bought like three different kinds of beer, three different cases of beer and put them in my back seat and went over and uh, followed his directions. Well, this is no GPS, no cell phones. And so I've written down the directions that he gave me. And it was like, turn at this tree, turn at this four-way stop. And I'm just laughing. I'm like, what kind of Hickville is this? You know, because I'm from Atlanta, right? So he told me to turn at the park and I keep driving up and down this road and I'm looking for swing sets and a pond and, you know, ducks and I'm just not seeing any of that. And I've, I finally am thinking, he gave me bogus directions and I'm just ticked off and I'm just like going to say screw it and go, go back home. So I kept driving up and down this road and then I see Trailer Park, Curtis Trailer Park, and I'm like, 
oh, I guess it's that park. And so I just thought that was a cool adventure because I had never been in one of those. And so I said, well, I'll just see if I follow the directions. If I end up at his house, then I'll know this is this is it. So he had uh, like a 1957 barn red single wide trailer that stuck out like a sore thumb in the middle of all these other normal looking trailers. And so I definitely found the right place. And um, uh, Terry was there waiting on the steps for me in his polyester Napoleon Dynamite outfit. And I thought, oh boy. And um, then your dad came bounding out and that was back in the day where you would wear denim overalls with one strap undone that was like a real hip thing and he had like his hair slicked back in a steven seagal ponytail because that was also very hip at the time and he was a black belt and taught a karate school so he was very muscly and just i just thought he was just quite yummy and this was going to be a fun night so the three of us went to dinner and we went to have pizza and during the supper i just kept looking at your dad and i thought you know he is so cute we've just got to ditch this roommate guy and um so after dinner we went back to their trailer your dad's trailer and um terry said something about the lord i don't remember how it came up but the next thing i know your dad is sharing the gospel with his roommate um, and I'm just sitting there listening and I really was just sitting there crying at the sweetness of it all. And I felt just amazed that someone relatively, you know, um, my age and new to me, uh, was talking like he was this 80 year old deacon in a church. I mean, it was just the sweetest thing. I had known people like that, but it had been such a long time since I had spent any time with people like that, probably when I was a little girl. And um, it really moved me. And uh, when I left there, which I, <laughs> this is embarrassing because this is my son is interviewing me, but when I went home, which was an unusual occurrence for me to go back to my apartment, um, he walked me out to the car and he kissed me on the cheek and that was very unusual because it was more, you know, n none of those things were ever happening with the guys that I was hanging out with. It was all, you know, totally the other end of the spectrum and um, he just told me goodnight and I left and I drove down the road just crying and knowing that I had been in the presence of the Lord's work and I started praying and I told the Lord that I was afraid because I felt like I wasn't good enough for him and that I was really going to tarnish him if I spent time with him because I had been living such a trashy life and he um, had not because his roommate was confident and enough in, in your dad's um, uh, friendship and faith to just sit there and ask these questions in front of this new girl, you know, that's, that's in their living room. And, and it turned out to be a really important conversation because he was actually very suicidal and he had had a, um, a fiance who had, um, been in a car accident and she died and, 
Um, he was really grasping at straws. And, of course, I didn't know all that. But their conversation went on for hours that night, and I just sat there. And at first I was kind of ticked off because I thought, here I am, and I got all in all my cute stuff, and he's just not paying any attention to me at all. He's, he's sharing his faith with this guy that he lives with that he could talk to any other time. But it was very important that he did it right then, and, and I didn't know that, but your dad knew that. And that's one of the things I love and respect about your dad so much is that he really puts the Lord's uh, assignments ahead of anything else. As you know, work schedule, whatever. Um, he's going to get that done. And so when I left there, I, I didn't know if we could go out because I really respected him, but I really felt like I was just too much of a trashy party girl and I wasn't going to be good for him and um and it, and he scared me I I knew that I wouldn't be able to manipulate him and um just determine how the night was going to go because with anybody else I could just decide how I wanted it to go and so as I was praying on the way home um and I had a, a probably a 20 30 minute drive um the Lord spoke to me spoke to my heart and he said this is the answer to your prayer and um if you turn your back on him you're turning your back on me and what I have for you and I took that very serious because I had prayed for several years even though I wasn't living right I was living better than I had and I'd cleaned up my act to some degree and I sincerely was weary of just chewing up guys and spitting them out and being in the whole party scene and the whole dating scene. And I really was ready for, um, you know, my man, my, my hero and my, my prince to come rescue me. I really, I knew I needed help and I needed a, a good leader. And, um, I had sincerely prayed for that. So when he, when the Lord told me that I, I took it very serious and, um, so I talked to your dad some that week off and on and, um, my, my old boyfriend showed up. As I said, he stalked me some, I didn't want him to come, but he showed up and he had money to just do what he wanted. So he just kind of appeared where he wanted to. And, um, he really want, he kept saying, I can't believe you don't want to get married. And I'm like, no, I don't. You know, how many times do I need to say that? And, ended up dumping a huge bowl of salad on his head and telling him to leave. And he, he finally left, and your dad wasn't sure if he and I were getting back together or not. Um, and I promised him that we weren't, but it wasn't until we went out again that he realized that I was really truthfully not interested in that guy anymore. And I, I was very interested in your dad, but I shared with him that, you know, I hadn't been living like he had been living he was serving in the youth group and not that he was perfect by any means he had struggles that anybody has and any man has but um he truly loved the lord and was was already serving him and so we um that's how we started off so i guess what we'll go into is um is the stuff with with oma so okay. um yeah so she came to live with us between Yes. And, and one of your brothers, and we'll go from there. Yes. So, um, 
sadly, when you were a year old, my dad passed away. He had smoked a lot of cigarettes, and it caught up with him. And um, so the thing that I didn't want to promise him was the thing that I ended up having to promise him was that I would take care of my mom, <laughs> which that sounds really ugly, but I figured, you know, I've got two brothers. We can do this together, but ultimately it pretty much fell to me. My middle brother would help and take her sometimes for, you know, a couple months and then we'd have her for four or five and then sometimes he would come once a week and get her and we just kind of mixed it up and he was very sweet to do that and she ended up living with us um, the last 10 years of her life um, and we got used to just bringing her places and letting people think she was you know this kind of weird kooky lady and um, I couldn't stay home because if I stayed home because of that I would have missed everything and y'all were growing up and we just had to bring her with us and she she was sweeter because she was older and so she wasn't violent anymore but she was still pretty strange and one night we were at uh, Free Chapel in Gainesville um, there's always an amazing um, spirit and service there and um, we had uh, gone to the altar I had gone by myself to the altar and um, basically everybody in the church was at the altar and um, I really didn't know if she had gone to the altar or not. I didn't really care. I just had business to do with the Lord myself and I knew she'd be fine. So um, after that church service was over, um, she started telling your dad and I that she had gone to the altar and forgiven some people that she needed to forgive for a long time and I said oh that's great mom you know but I didn't take uh, a whole lot of um, hope and I didn't have a whole lot of hope and uh, a change from that because she had you know just like right before that the week before that we were driving down the road she tried to jump out of the car I mean she was always doing something crazy and you'd have a couple of good days and then she'd do something crazy and so it was hard to put a lot of stock into her sane moments, even though you would try because, you know, they were nice. And, um, so as time went on, your dad and I realized that she really was peaceful and she was joyful and she was, um, happy. And she was more like the mom that I remembered from when I was young. And, um, so I started to ask her more about that. And she said, well, that she had forgiven her brother who had molested her and the other people that had molested her and that she felt free and she truly was. There's a verse in the Bible, I don't remember where it is, but it talks about roots of bitterness and how, you know, they can really ruin your life. And bitterness is an addiction itself. And um, when she let that go, and received, uh, you know, joy instead, she truly was a different person. And she enjoyed those last years of her life. And she was still kooky and crazy. And y'all remember her doing all kinds of kooky, funny things. But she was sweet and she was at peace. And um, she would still you know, pretend to write big books that we had to rush off to the 
post office because she had to meet a deadline. <laughs> and we would still mail them and still did these kooky things with her, but she was at peace. And she, um, I was so grateful and, um, you know, just happy that she had um, let that go because it truly had almost destroyed her and the rest of us. And um, being that she was in my house with my two young sons, the Lord just um, really blessed that time with her so that we could enjoy her, and and we did. Mm. Yeah, she was, uh, I just remember her as being really sweet, and, you know, her. she had Alzheimer's and stuff, I guess, so um, so she would say really silly things, but it, it seemed, it was a silly thing, like, yeah, it was but clear innocent. that she wasn't, yeah, 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 it was like silly, yeah. like, um, and she would just randomly laugh and stuff. Yes. And, and let me um, also say, this is a huge uh, part of that. There's a verse in the Bible where Jesus says, certain things can only be broken by prayer and fasting. And thankfully, we had a pastor at the Grove, Jeff Appling, who taught us to fast, uh, to break some of this um, spiritually off of her and our family. And, um, you know... I'd never done any of that before, but why not? And nothing else had worked. So he said that he would fast with us. So we basically did a Daniel fast where we didn't, um, you know, eat anything that wasn't clean. And um, that was real unusual for us at the time. And so we did that for three weeks. And he had another friend that was fasting and praying with us because I had explained to him the severity of her situation and how concerned I was to have her living in my home with my young sons and how she had been growing up. And I just really was concerned. And, um, so we prayed and fasted for three weeks and each Sunday morning, he would ask me how it was going. Well, the third Sunday morning, which was the 21st day, um, he said, if this doesn't change when I see you next week, I'm going to get this other pastor friend of mine to come and pray, and we're going to double up on our efforts. And we kept claiming that verse that things, you know, that prayer and fasting would make this change. And that night was when we went to free chapel, and that night was when, you know, that spirit of resentment and bitterness and death and depression and all that broke off of her because she let it go. And so I know for some people, the fasting topic is a strange topic, yeah. but fasting can be anything from not eating it, eating at all to fasting Facebook for a month to, um, you know, not, uh, having coffee, which thank the Lord, the Lord doesn't make me do that <laughs> or anything like that. The point is that it made us focus on the Lord and in the times that we would spend, Instead of preparing, uh, you know, something uh, that was uh, not clean to eat uh, or going to a fast food place, instead we'd spend that time um, focusing on the Lord. And and in that sacrifice, um, you can hear more clearly because you're not letting your flesh dominate what's happening. And it's a great way to tell your flesh to take a seat. Yeah, there's definitely a psychological aspect to, um, like, sort of self ownership uh ownership or yes um i think that's definitely a principle of 
of why it's in scripture yes um is like one of the main things it does is that you're basically saying there's nothing off the table that i cannot stop or will not um put a leash on for um for the change that i want to see i guess that's right um yeah so i guess let's go into the this cr like era as far as our our life the last okay. handful of years okay well um as y'all grew up uh we continued to be involved in ministry and serving in different areas dad was a youth pastor several times and um he planted and pastored a church for five years he continued to run our lawn care business and really burned himself out he was um very anxious and very um unusually um just uh burdened and he was also struggling in his own areas uh with the lord and i'll leave that for his podcast interview but um there came a time where we realized we needed to stop and let someone else continue the ministry we had started and that we needed to reel back and focus on our own issues and so we had a friend um cindy barton who is a sweet sweet sister and she invited us to celebrate recovery. We went to Eastridge the morning, um, the Sunday after we stopped serving at our church. And um, that night they had a step study and we started going that night. And Celebrate Recovery is a Christian 12-step program. And it teaches you to focus on your own issues and to basically deal with the the family secrets, the family uh, shame, guilt, anything you have that you're dealing with personally or that your family has put you in the middle of. And, um, it was, uh, the beginning of our healing and we continue to serve in that to this day, which has been, um, I guess 11 years ago that we went, um, and celebrate recovery is, uh, an amazing tool that, the Lord uses and it, it blesses people, whether they're Christians or not. But, um, the Bible says in James that you confess your sins to one another and you shall be healed. And even though that may not be my favorite thing, it may not be my favorite thing to talk about on this podcast or, or in my testimony to share, uh, the the sins of, of my life. And of course I still have them, but I'd have different ones that I deal with now. But, um, the word says that that's where healing comes from. And I have experienced that myself because when I'm sharing with another sister in Christ of my screw up or my fear or whatever it is, then, um, he is there in the middle of it as we pray over it. And it's something that it stretches you beyond or stretches me beyond where I would go myself in dealing with my own issues. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge blessing. And um, as, you know, the last podcast guest you had, Grayson, shared and, and talked about, it's a very powerful ministry, and it's an honor to be involved in it. Mm. Just any final thoughts for, for someone who might hear this? Well, um, I would just like to say be encouraged. There is hope. Um, there's a future for you. You are here for a purpose. Um, your life can be beautiful. Your, your, your adult life does not have to repeat what you grew up in. Um, you can create a life that's entirely different than the one you came out of. 
and that it's never too late to start over. Mm. It's never too late to be a new creation, and it's never too late to start enjoying your life. Thank you so much.